Hi, and welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with theater and music critic and journalist Alyssa Gardner. Her newest book, Magic to Do, Pippin's Fantastic Fraught Journey to Broadway and Beyond, is available now. In our conversation, we talk all about the contentious relationship between composer Stephen Schwartz and director and choreographer Bob Fosse. We talk about how this show specifically needs a very strong director's touch to make it work. And we also get into the kind of surprising fact that Stephen Schwartz doesn't have a competitive Tony. We talk about all of that and much, much more in this really fun conversation. We, of course, will have information in the show notes about where you can get Magic to Do, which, as I say in the episode, is a wonderful gift for the musical theater historian and fan in your life. So, with all of that out of the way, here is my conversation with Alyssa Gardner. So I feel like whether this is a Rodgers and Hammerstein show we're talking about or not, I feel like we should start at the very beginning um, mm-hmm. because the meeting between Stephen Schwartz and Bob Fosse was apparently not indicative of what their working relationship would become throughout the developmental process. It started fairly cordially and fairly professionally enough, um, but that didn't last super long. Where did that relationship begin to devolve into what I think a lot of theater fans know to be one of the perhaps most acrimonious uh, working relationships through the development of a musical in recent memory. That's that's true. <laughs> um, I believe it was at a reading. I spoke extensively with Stephen about this. Obviously, Bob Fosse is no longer with us, but there was a reading that he remembers not going very well, um, like months before rehearsal started, before the show had even been fully cast. Um, and it became very clear to Stephen at that point that, uh, that Mr. Fossey was not really happy with the direction of the show at that point. But I think where they really came to realize that it might be a contentious situation was during auditions because they wanted something entirely different. Um, quite simply put, to be as reductive as I can be, uh, Mr. Mr. Fossey wanted um, dancers and Stephen Schwartz wanted singers. And so they had a completely different vision for the show. And uh, they also wound up having different visions for the tone, for the text, and ironically more for the book than for the music. Uh, What Stephen told me was that uh, Mr. Fossey didn't really seem to have uh, many problems with the score. He would tease him about him being very fastidious about Stephen being too fastidious about rhyming, but it was more of like a good natured kind of teasing. His problem was with the book. And ironically, uh, Bob Fosse got along fine with Roger Herson because Roger Herson was much more amenable. His feeling was, you know, even though Mr. Herson was older, had at that point been a successful television writer and had had a Broadway success this was i think a broadway musical that he was very thrilled very excited about being a part of and he thought you know bob fossey's here i'm going to do what he says stephen schwartz was only 23 24 years old at this point but he had had a measure of success off broadway kind of huge success off broadway with godspell um he'd also just worked with leonard bernstein another living legend uh, even more of a legend at that point you could argue than than bob fossey so he was, by his own admission, um, there was a little youthful arrogance going on there. And he also just was very attached to the story that he'd been part of, that had been part of his life since he was an undergraduate student at Carnegie Mellon. And was his 
resistance to being as amenable as Roger was with the book to what Fosse was suggesting. If I mean, like you said, there wasn't a whole lot um, that Fosse was suggesting to change in the score, but he did certainly shape the tone of the show and what became of the story being told. Was Stephen's reluctance to kind of go along with that as much, like you said, that youthful arrogance, or was it his belief in the material, or was it a, a battle of personalities and wills that kind of went beyond what was actually happening on the stage in the page itself? I think Stephen's belief in the material was certainly a huge part of it. What he told me is that in reading the show again recently, once we started interviews, he told me that he went back, reread the original script, and he said that he realized the show needed to be rescued by Bob Fosse to succeed on Broadway, but that it needed to be rescued from Bob Fosse to have a long afterlife. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he realized that what he thought had really bothered him initially was the sort of cheap, vulgar humor he brought to it. That was a factor. Um, But his main issue in retrospect, Stephen said, was that he was undercutting the characters, especially the character of Pippin, who became diminished as the play was being rehearsed and as the edits and and the directorial vision came to the fore. Um, And the undercutting of emotion um, that... uh, I think Stephen had the sense that uh, there was an aesthetic distance being kept from the audience so that they would enjoy it and be titillated by it, but not care as much about the characters necessarily as much as he and Roger wanted them to. And that certainly kind of fits into the tone and context of a lot of other Fosse shows where there is this uh, a little bit of a remove from a performance aspect, whether it's Cabaret or Chicago or something where these they're getting uh, the story told through performances that are being, you know, kind of directed through. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, but it's like um, their performances in the show itself. So it's like they're not actually seeing the real story all the time. They are seeing a performance of the story, which is kind of where that framing device with the troop and the leading player comes in there. That from what you said in the book did kind of originate in that original script as a different character altogether. But Fosse really took the seeds of that. I think it was the old man character and turned that into something very different than what was originally in that first version of Pippin that Schwartz had worked on at Carnegie. That's right. The the fourth wall had certainly been pushed, but Fosse just knocked it down altogether and uh, turned it into a dance floor, I think is the way I put it in the book. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, I think, you know, irony and um, was certainly part, a, a certain jadedness, a certain mistrust of show business. Uh, uh, it was certainly something that, that and, and of, um, of artifice is something that certainly Bob Fosse brought to the show. Uh, but when you talk about shows like Chicago, um, for example, I think these are really good points. Bob Fosse was involved in the writing process on Chicago as well, or he was certainly involved in the creative process with the, uh, with the writers. Um, but with Pippin, there was a sense also, I think that the book just wasn't all that and a bag of chips, <laughs> to put it <laughs> frankly. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, I think what had really, again, this is ironic, but what had really drawn 
Bob Posse to this project, other than the opportunity to walk, to work on Broadway again, was the score. Um, you know, he liked the score and it is a tremendous score. I think it's a score that was initially undervalued um, by by certain critics anyway. Interestingly enough, the, the critics in Washington loved it. The, the New York team, the New York press was not uh, as as overwhelmed. They they seem to respond more to Fosse and give Fosse more credit for the success of the show. You New York uh, theater writers and critics are uh, are a right. difficult bunch to impress. Um, but it really yeah. it is interesting the way you kind of frame the difference between Fosse's view of the show with this jaded, cynical, experienced look at show business with Schwartz, who now, even though Schwartz is an elder statesman of the American theater and one of the most decorated um, writers in musical theater history, although still waiting on his Tony, of course. Um, Which is insane. It really is. That's a whole other conversation which we can get back to. Um, That that 2003 was still, I still remember the look on his face at the Tonys, but we can talk about that. But what's interesting is that throughout Schwartz's entire career, whether that is dating back to something like Godspell, working up through Pippin and even working in and uh, Children of Eden and, and everything else up until Wicked and some of the stuff that he's done since then and throwing in all the Disney stuff. Like, I would never say that the cynicism that we saw so much from Fosse throughout a lot of his work, but especially in Pippin, ever got into at least Schwartz's work, whether or not that's in his personal life, you would know far better than I would. But I, mm. I feel like the, that dichotomy between those two people felt much more personal, just like personality wise, than even the generational difference, which I think is maybe at the time what it felt like for a lot of people, or at least as I was reading the book, it felt like, oh, this is an old experienced veteran versus a young guy coming up. But even today, Stephen Schwartz still feels like he still has that youthful not naivete, but optimism that he approached this work with in, in, you know, in the seventies. Yeah, I think that's, that's very, that's very perceptive. Um, I can tell you, I mean, I, I did speak with him extensively. He was extremely generous with his time for the book and I didn't get any sense of cynicism from him as a person uh, in our conversation, certainly. And, and it's, you're right. It's not in his work and, and not because I think his work is naive or overly earnest, but um, because there is that, um, that kind of joy and that grace that, that comes through in his music and lyrics. And I think that at the same time, you know, it wasn't entirely about Fosse's cynicism. I think, you know, he had uh, a lot of the people I spoke with for the book said that, for example, to compare Fosse to the leading player, at least to say that Fosse was the leading player, that he was this jaded, cynical showbiz character, this sort of sinister, seductive figure, and that um, Stephen Schwartz was Pippin, the naive idealist, <laughs> uh, would be simplistic because, you know, Stephen, even at that point, was ambitious. He was smart um, and, um, you know, probably more pragmatic than Pippin. <laughs> I would hope so anyway. Yeah. And um, and uh, Fosse had the dancers I spoke with especially stressed, you know, there was a a sense of wonder in him that he never lost um a boyish enthusiasm they spoke of and and they certainly contrasted that quality that he had still during pippin with what happened after he had a major heart attack early in the rehearsals process for chicago that he he changed certainly in a work environment there was you know that he didn't become bitter but he became more 
um, there was more of a, of a sense of gloom around him. Um, but he was certainly a vital man. He believed in hard work and, and like, like Pippin, he believed in just going for perfection and, and pushing for it as hard as you can, no matter the consequences. So, um, you know, I mean, that's, that in itself is not really cynicism, is it? No. Yeah. No, that's a very yeah. good, that's a very good point. And I think, I, I, I think that whether it's, you know, having observed a lot of his his works on stage or screen or watching uh, the FX series uh, Fosse Vernon or whatever, I think there's there's obviously uh, this popular conception of there being a little bit of a difference, I think, between Fosse, the creator, the director and choreographer, and maybe Fosse, the dancer, at least for me, like I think probably the first time I ever knew who Bob Fosse was, whether I actually knew his name or not, which I probably didn't, was in the damn Yankees movie. And oh. you know, so like I knew him as this kind of like silly dancer in this dance number. And then to kind of as I grew up and, and started to know more about musical theater to see who he was as a creator in his own right, those always kind of were, were very different to me. And, and of course, that's again just as a viewer and not knowing him personally at the time, especially because I was, you know, a teenager when I was learning these things. But it it always seemed that there was a difference a little bit between the performer Fosse and the director choreographer Fosse that maybe speaks to why the dancers think differently of him than maybe some of his collaborators did as well. But um Oh yeah. I, I think what's interesting about the the story of how Fosse kind of molded what became the book to Pippin into, you know, a little bit of an allegory to his experience or his view, at least, of of the theater profession is to me. I remember watching the filmed version of this when I was very young, probably too young to really understand what I was really watching, to be quite honest with you. Um, It is shocking. And you mentioned the word sinister. There is that there. And obviously for, you know, it's five decades old at this point, you know, with the the leading player and the troop trying to convince Pippin to uh, to kill himself like that is fairly shocking um, for a lot of ways. This show ran for four and a half years, close to five years on Broadway, 1900 something performances. Um, but it feels very much of its time with this kind of ethereal um I don't know if hippie's the right word that might be too too old of a term even for the 70s. But um, despite the fact that it ran a long time, I, I don't know if it ever, because of kind of the, the strangeness of the book, had the longevity in terms of productions that it did until, of course, the, the recent revival. Was that something that, as you talk to people, that they were cognizant of or lamented or thought that maybe this score is great, but it hasn't had the widespread acclaim that maybe some other shows would have because of the unique take on the book that Fosse brought to it? Well, one of my colleagues who I spoke with, uh, Adam Feldman, um, Mm -hmm. who's headed the New York Drama Critics Circle and also uh, a Time Out New York critic, really smart guy, um, knows a ton about theater, obviously, uh, made a really great point, which is that uh, Bob Fosse's contribution to Pippin was not so much, or I should say it was more than his directorial vision, it was the notion that a strong directorial vision was needed hmm. for this show. Because um, because it is, I mean, uh, if you take it on a very general level, this is a story that is really timeless and universal in the sense that it's the 
journey from innocence to experience. I mean, everyone goes through that. And there was a definite hippie vibe attached to it in, uh, you know, in, in the period it was in and, and the way that it was directed and the way it was written to a certain extent. Um, but I think uh, at the same time, there's a reason this show is so popular at, at camps and schools and in amateur outlets, um, because it is, even if you take away the aspects of it that are really, you know, more technically challenging, like Fosse's choreography, which is often not done, certainly mm -hmm. in camp and school productions, and even in a lot of professional productions, um, it, it is getting at something very essential and, um, and very, um, accessible. And also because the book is not, you know, it doesn't really have this, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not really avant-garde, but it's not really a well-made play either. I mean, I think yeah. that, that there were parts of, of, um, of, uh, Herson's writing, his previous writing that were a little more experimental that Stephen Schwartz was drawn to. Um, but, um, but it became something different once Fosse became involved and it became something where irony and humor and ta-da and ha-cha and <laughs> all those, <laughs> you know, like, uh, all those, sort of um, yeah, the expressions, yeah. the Fosseisms, right? Yeah. The, the, you know, things that were as much, um, uh, you know, visceral as they were anything you could communicate with the story. Um, that that's, It still translates, uh, depending on who's, who's handling it, whether it's a, you know, camp counselor or Diane Paulus or, mm -hmm. you know, some other director with a very strong vision that, that this is a, a play that is uh, uh, flexible, a musical that is flexible. Yeah. And you mentioned Diane Paulus. And at the end of the book, you do have a short chapter on the revival she helmed first at the American Repertory Theater and then uh, on Broadway, which I think, despite the fact that theater lovers have long loved the show, whether through the score or that filmed version, um, really opened up the a, a larger community to people who could become fans of that show. Um it still had a lot of the same framing, you know, it still had the same script, obviously, but it still had a, a similar framing device where it was set up with, you know, performers this time, a circus. Um, was was there any type of when you were talking to, to Stephen, did he feel like this was a different take on the show or was it just kind of an updated version, like you said, with a strong directorial hand of the same thing? Or did he did he feel that there was something unique about this that wasn't achieved in that original production? Well, he had also loved uh, a London production that had done had been done previously mm -hmm. by a director named Mitch Sebastian, which had a new ending, which has come to be known as the Theo ending, which is now the official ending of the last published version of Pippin, in which um, instead of um, Pippin just saying, um, you know, he felt trapped but happy, but that's okay for the end of a musical comedy, that he didn't end the show, that the show ended with Theo, who was um, Catherine's son, who would... Mm -hmm be his stepson, essentially, um, and us getting a sense that he was going to go on the same journey, on the same perhaps dangerous, perhaps vaguely sinister journey, because uh, he started singing Pippin's song, Corner of the Sky, Pippin's I Want song, and um, the, the players started surrounding him. So that ending was already in place. It wasn't used in all the productions, but it was used in many, and Stephen loved it. And Diane Paulus took that and then added 
the circus theme, which I think Stephen was initially, by his own admission, a little wary of, sure. because it had been proposed to him by other people. Uh, you know, she had not been the first to propose it, but um, there was this really innovative theater troupe that both she and the producer Barry Weisler were really fond of. Um, I think the Seven Fingers is how it translates in English. They're a Canadian-based troupe, Quebec. So uh, it's a French name, but it translates to Seven Fingers. And they just did really interesting different things with circus that they felt they could uh, combine with aspects of choreography sort of in the style of Bob Fosse. They they hired Chet Walker, who unfortunately passed recently, to do uh, some choreography. But um, a lot of it was was circus stuff that was done by Gypsy Snyder um, with, with the Seven Fingers troupe. So it was a different vision of the show. Um, but it was, um, it had the same kind of tent poles. It had this new ending that no Stephen loved. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and, um, and he wound up very happy with it. In fact, I believe it was that, uh, libretto that is now, it is, that is now the version of, uh, of Pippin You Get, if you license it from Musical Theater International. That's fascinating. It's such a, I mean, obviously, for very good reason, a Tony winning and widely acclaimed uh, production. But really, as I said, you know, my I think probably the only time I'd ever seen it was that filmed version. And to see that version from Diane Paulus really opened my eyes to a lot of things. Also, a, a number of decades in between. But uh, but that's fascinating. R real quick, we mentioned the fact that Stephen Schwartz still I, he might have an honorary Tony of some sort, I think, but never not a competitive one, at least. Is that something that you talk to him at all about? Because he's not necessarily been shy about the fact that that, I think, is a goal of his, uh, even yeah. though at this point still doesn't have one. I don't know if he is working on anything else coming to Broadway anytime soon. But uh, it, it, it would seem that with a career like his, that he is somebody that should have multiple, uh, let alone one. Yeah, no, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I still think it's crazy that the Baker's wife hasn't come to Broadway. Um, yeah. You know, there's uh, he's just written so much beautiful music, so much really soulful music. I think of of his music as like the uh, the instance where pop, rock and musical theater meet without the bombast uh, <laughs> that you get from I won't name other composers, but I'm sure you can. I've got <laughs> four or five in my head about. already. Yes, exactly, yes. exactly, and with uh, and and it's groovy too. I mean, there's a reason that this uh, that this uh, musical appealed to um, Barry Gordy, and that Motown released the soundtrack and was able to have uh, rather release the uh, original cast recording and was able to enlist Michael Jackson and the Supremes to record these songs because they are groovy songs. So I don't know, maybe that's tangential, but. Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, he has received, obviously, Oscars, Grammys. Um, uh, and I know he's, I believe he's working on another musical now. Obviously, there's the Wicked movie in the works, mm -hmm. the Wicked movies, I should movies, say. Movies, plural, yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, he'll he'll have no, he has no shortage of awards and he'll have no, no lack of opportunities for more awards. Um, he's a very young, 70, I think he's seventy three or 74 now, but, but you would never know it to, uh, to speak with him or to look at him. Um, so, um, I don't know. We, we didn't actually have that conversation and all the time we spoke about, are you angry about not having a Grammy or rather not having a, a Tony? Um, but, um, it is, it is very odd. Yeah. It, it, 
it, it's hard. I you know when I look at awards, I don't think awards in and of themselves mean a whole lot. I don't think they change the the impact of a work, although they can change the longevity of the work, uh, you know, running on Broadway, especially when it comes to musicals. But what I look at them as, as, as you are trying to tell the story of whatever industry it is, whether it's uh, music history or movie history, or in the Tony's case, theater history, can you tell the story of this genre without the people who don't have the awards? And I don't think you can tell the story of musical theater or Broadway, at least in the past 50 years, without Stephen Schwartz and obviously a lot of his shows and yeah. and collaborators and performers for his shows have been recognized. But to n- him not have one of those little spinny trophies uh, seems like a, a missed opportunity uh, in a lot of ways. Not that any of the other shows that won against his weren't deserving. I'm not saying that, but still seems right. I- incredible to me. Um, but I, I will wrap this up so I don't take too much of your time. But is there a story in talking to all the people that you did, whether it was um, Steven or any of anybody else that surprised you more than anything else, whether it was something to do with the Schwartz and Fosse relationship or just one of the random stories. I know you talked a lot about, you know, the, you know, auditions and dancers and, and a lot of those different things in there, but is there anything that stuck out to you that really was emblematic of what this show means or this process meant, uh, to getting it to the Broadway stage? Hmm. I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily emblematic and I don't know if it came as a great surprise to me either, but um, certainly one of the things that stayed with me the longest, you've mentioned the the Fosse Verdon series previously. Um, I spoke with numerous dancers and they were all, and the women particularly, um, objected to the way, I I shouldn't say they all, but the women I spoke with objected to the way he was portrayed in that series and were very much, uh, you know, basically what they said outright in a couple of cases was that Bob Fosse was not a predator. Now, what a predator was in 1972 and what a predator would be considered in 2022 (laughs) are perhaps different things. But um, but I, I got the sense none of them felt threatened by him, that obviously he was a womanizer, um, as as uh, many male directors and artists and, and <laughs> people in all uh, walks of life have been, but that they never felt as if their job was on the line, as if they said no, if, if they said no. And a lot of them did say no, according to them, that they he would call them up late at night. Um, that was an interesting sort of uh, bit of information, learning about these late night conversations he would have with uh, with various women in the cast that would not lead to sex or would not lead to them even necessarily going to his room for a drink. It would just be, you know, Candy Brown told me he, you know, want to talk about the meaning of life. And and you got a sense or I got a sense of, of someone who was um, maybe this is a cliche, but but lonely looking for a certain connection that maybe you know for all the uh, again this is almost too much of a cliche to say but i i don't know maybe at that level when you are a god to people in your industry uh it, it is harder to make that basic human connection with people and uh and that was something he seemed to be looking for it's interesting that you say that the the series was uh, maybe overly reliant on that part of that story, maybe over exaggerated it when his daughter was one of the producers on that show. So that's uh, that's interesting that the dancers kind yes. of had a different a different view of that than maybe she did or or she allowed to be 
uh, to put into that series. But uh, that's interesting. That's that's very, very uh, eye opening, I guess, to, to hear that different perspective than what we all saw in that series. But um, yeah, I, I appreciate this. I, I think this is fascinating. I, I think the show itself is fascinating. And when you have a show that is that compelling to also know that the story behind it is also maybe even just as dramatic and interesting uh, as as what ended up on stage, I think that's a uh, part of the things that make the, all of these behind-the-scenes stories and books of musical theater so uh, so alluring to people over the decades, and uh, I, I think it's wonderful. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. I, we will have information on how everybody can get the book. What a wonderful holiday gift this would be for uh, for the musical theater lovers in their lives. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> all of Please. them. If you have multiple musical theater lovers in your lives, get multiple copies. Um, but I, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this and have a, a wonderful rest of your day. I so appreciate this, Matt. Thank you so much for your time. 